Hey guys, welcome back to Intern Investing. It's me and Connor here, and we are very privileged to uh, be talking with Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer. They got they uh, run the Chit Chat Money podcast. Uh, they're also Fool.com writers for The Motley Fool. Ryan, Brett, it's great having you. How, how are you guys? Pretty good. Yeah, not too bad. I've, I've watched some Intern Investing videos before, and I've spoken with Connor. I haven't got the chance to talk with you yet, Jamie, but... Uh... Yeah, good on my end. Look forward to talking to Nelman. Yep, glad to be here. Nice to meet both of you guys. Yeah, so we're gonna we're gonna be talking uh, Nelnet today. Um, but before I wanna before we get to that, I just wanna really quick mention or you know let let Ryan and Brett you know introduce you guys. Um, you know, re really quick. It doesn't have to be long. Just what what you guys are doing, and if there's any place that um, viewers can you know uh, go go read more about you guys or hear more from you guys. Um, you know, I, I I want you guys to plug that right up front. Sure. We uh, so Brett and I co-host chit chat money together and we on that show we basically dive into like individual stocks that's on each episode we kind of dedicate it to one stock um and we also are general partners uh of an investment fund so something we kind of just run together uh, we're pretty much concentrated long only uh i guess stock pickers in that portfolio and that's mostly family and friends invested am i missing anything there brett yeah, I mean, just if you want to listen to the show, it's on all the different podcast platforms. It's for free. We do two a week. Um, we bring on different guests. We have recurring um, guest hosts that come on with us, analysts, I guess you would call them. And it's a great time. So if you want to learn about individual stocks, if that's your thing, that's what we do. Awesome. It's a fantastic podcast just, just for everybody. They they really get deep into every single company that they're talking about. I know they're called not so deep dives, but if you're interested in a company, uh, it, it's really a fantastic place to go to. And there's not really anything else out there like Chit Chat Money to where if you want to hear about a stock, there's a good chance that somewhere in the history uh, of Chit Chat Money's podcast, there is a episode on on one of these companies that you might be interested in so definitely go check it out it's really good yeah i i'm i'm gonna second that that's one of the podcasts that i listen to uh you know pretty much on a weekly basis it's a it's a great podcast um but let's let's get into nelnet um personally for me the only reason i know what nelnet does is because i pay them for my college loans and that is the only reason i know them um but digging digging in more into them they do so much more um than that and they, they really have so many other business models and incredible optionality i mean so ryan do you just want to start us off like briefly explain what Nelnet does um, and, you know, talk about how their, their main business, which is their, their, their loans business um, really kind of subsidizes the, the, the rest of their uh, business model uh, businesses. Yeah. It, uh, I think that is probably how most people sort of like just typical, I guess, consumers interface with Nelnet, which is their loan servicing product. I will say, I don't think, I don't think Nelnet originated your loan, but I think you are paying through them. So they're sort of that uh, that in between, um, or I guess uh, administrator, servicer, whatever you want to call it. Um, but yeah, so they used to write student loans. They used to originate themselves. They would, I guess, put the money up um, and get paid an interest. But in I think it was two thousand eight, they that student lending got federalized or the government took it over. So Nelnet wasn't able to originate their own loans. They still service them, 
Um, but basically, they've got this giant uh, loan book um, outstanding that's just melting. And I think it's $20 billion, it might be a little less now, but $20 billion in outstanding loans, not not interest, but just loans. And then they generate cash off of those loans each year. And it's slowly shrinking, but they're using that cash to deploy it elsewhere to other businesses that they've found or acquired over the years. And so I'll go through some of them. Uh, I might not be able to hit on all of them, but they have a fun. So they have Nelnet Bank, which is a smaller part of their business, but it's headquartered in Salt Lake City, Utah. Um, and they write private student loans. And then there's a business services segment. So this is a bunch of different education related software products. So uh, administrative software for like the, the principal's office or tuition processing software for colleges or private schools. There's a, I think a, there's one like Catholic faith based technologies, I think is a company they own, which is maybe like workflow software for churches. Um, and, and together that that is probably the subsidiary that I like the best. There's also the loan servicing side, which they the, their primary customer is the federal government. So they service um, those loans. So they kind of act as the in-between between Jamie and the federal government. Um, and then other businesses I might be missing, uh, Allo Communications. This is a fiber, uh, fiber cable business. I think it's operated in Nebraska and Colorado. I mean, they only own, they sold part of it. So they only own about 48% of it now. Um, and then they have a, a renewable energy services business. Brett, do you want to talk about that? I think you know it better than I do. Yeah. Do you want to, we have a specific section on that. I can, we can go through that in more detail since that's where they're making a lot of heavy investments currently, but continue on everything else now. Yeah. And then they, they just have a bunch of different arms that they invest in. So there's a real estate part, they have a venture arm and they have a pretty sizable stake in huddle, which I think we'll talk about that as well, um, that I really like, and they've been sort of investing in them for a while, but it's basically, uh, besides Berkshire, it's another, uh, Nebraska based, uh, conglomerate and uh it's omaha right lincoln lincoln, lincoln. <laughs> the other big town sorry the but only yeah. other big town yeah i was just about to say <laughs> that's that's really interesting i, I love the, the fact that you know they're they're such an optional business and i definitely want to get into that um but right right off the bat ryan you said that um they they have a lot of they're they're the government is their biggest uh, customer for the most part for for some of these uh, loan loan servicing programs. And I mean, when the, the first thing when I'm seeing, hey, the government is using them as a customer um, and, you know, in the past, there's been a lot of questions about um, a major decrease, especially in higher education, uh, mainly, you know, college, private college. Um, you know, there's there's a questions about tuition being drastically decreased or even being cut for some for some state schools or something like that how would that if anything how would that impact um nelnet itself because i mean after all if i don't have to pay or i have to pay significantly less tuition and nelnet's the middleman between me and the government wouldn't they get less transaction revenue or if i didn't have to pay any and my my loans were waived completely i wouldn't have to use them at all um wouldn't, wouldn't that you know hurt the business in some way shape or form yeah I can, I can touch on it and then brett can maybe add whatever i don't get so there's i guess a, there's no way to know exactly how it would affect them but the the student loans that they own so the ones they originated uh, are federally guaranteed so so 
unless the government decides that they're not going to pay those back, which seems like a bad idea because um, it kind of sets a bad precedent. They uh, that if they decided to cancel student loans, which doesn't seem like it's happening, that would I think be a benefit to Nelnet because they would be paying it. The most likely scenario is that they'd be paying that cash directly to Nelnet, or they just take it over from whoever the students are that borrowed um, and they just pay it out themselves. But I think one way or another, that money is going to get paid on the servicing side. It's hard to say um, they have, they renewed a contract for two years uh, in December. So it expires in 2023. And I think there's a portion of that that's sort of guaranteed money. Um, am I, am I getting that right, Brett? They kind of, I don't think they would just leave Nelma out to die. Yeah, they're one of the only, there's only two, I think, scaled players in the servicing space now. So if there's still loans to service, the servicing business is going to be around. There was some interesting things that were going on in, uh, I think it was late 2020 or something like that, where there was some thoughts of, okay, someone in the education department had some relationship with another servicing business. And they were thinking they were going to go with someone else. But then I think they kind of wised up and said, all right, we're going to go with the established player. Now it's going to be there. But if if student loans get canceled or say student loans go away, something like that, the servicing business will probably go away because if there's no servicing, you know, if there's no loans to service, that business is gone. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that would be a hundred million dollar hit in ish in operating income a year. But then with the, like Ryan was saying, with the assets they already own, the loans that they already originate, or sorry, not originate, that they have on their books, which I know it's confusing because there's two different businesses. The servicing part is is completely separate from the loans they own that are still around from say the 2010 era. Um, and because student loans are so long dated, they still have that on their books and they're gonna get approximately $1.5 billion in cash from that over the next five years. And then after that, it's fairly negligible because those are all going to expire and they can't originate anymore. So there's a few scenarios I could go on. Like if nothing happens, look at that $1.5 billion. It's basically guaranteed. If they cancel student loans, they'll most likely get either all of that back or a portion of that back right away. So in either scenario, now that's going to come out on top or they're going to be fine and they're going to get some of that cash flow. And the servicing segment isn't just federal student loans there's also private uh private school loans um just privatized uh, student lending in general that they're servicing so some of that operating income would certainly go away um but it's it's important to think about it uh in terms of its actual impact on the business like it's a subset of numbers overall business and it's a subset within even the servicing side it's it's uh, probably the most significant portion of it, but there's other, the servicing arm wouldn't just disappear because loans would have to get serviced other than federal student loans. Right. And then one thing I should add is that they're trying to, uh, and that, that talking about the private thing kind of uh, maybe remembered is with Nelnet Bank, they're trying to restart kind of this asset ownership part that they lost when the federal government took everything in house. So now they're doing private loans, financing those through Nelnet Bank. So that's kind of how they're trying to grow back this asset uh, management arm that's going to wean or basically go away over the next five years. So are they actively building their book from loans other than K through 12 or is it K through 12 
private loans, and then they've got their, obviously they've got their federal student loans, but are they building a book out of uh, any other form of loans? Uh, it's unclear. I, okay. I think you can, I think you can re, I believe there's a way that you can refinance federal loans. Um, if you can't, I, the reason, the reason the government took it in house was because it potentially leads to predatory practices to guarantee the loans like they have to pay you back um, because then you can sort of they were lenders were able to i guess do uh, be sort of predatory for people that maybe couldn't afford it um, but if you can get a lower rate with say now that bank uh, i don't see why that would be a problem yeah and that's for non-college stuff that's for say k-12 through like exactly like you were saying okay yeah. so that's their that's their primary uh, other part of their bank is K through 12. And does Nelnet bank have any aspirations? Have they talked about anything uh, as far as, as building out loan servicing for any other, any other types of loans, I guess? Well, so I should uh, clarify that the assets that they owned, and I know it's confusing from like, say 2010, that got stopped. That's not within the bank. So the bank actually just started in 2020. They got the, uh, I forget what the license is. It's it's not the SEC, but some charter. regulatory license. Yeah, whatever or the charter. Excuse me, FDIC, the charter. FDIC okay. charter. Yeah, the the uh, whatever FDIC. Yeah, the they got that charter, and it's only been twenty. It's only been a few years, so they're really building that out from a small base. I think they only have two hundred fifty million in assets. I don't have the exact number in front of me, so it's it's hard to say right now. But they did say they're going into the private student loan business of say K through 12. And that's how they're going to try to build up their loan book. That's going to disappear over the next five years. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. I, I love that. And I mean, one, one question, I mean, I personally, when I, when I'm looking at investing in, in companies and I see that kind of government concentration and having the government in various entities as specific uh, customers, do you guys see the growth in the privatization, like the private, um, you know, types of loans and with, with their own, with Nelnet Bank, do you, do you see that as a better growth opportunity, um, you know, kind of the same as their government, their government side of the business or, um, you know, I, I guess my question is, which one would you be more excited about, you know, going into the future? So the 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 servicing side, I don't value that that highly as a part of uh, if I'm doing sort of a sum of the parts of Nelnet's businesses, servicing federal loans isn't to me a big chunk of it, uh, of its valuation. So um it isn't detrimental to having to, to have them as a customer, um, but obviously you don't want too much cost, customer concentration ever. Um, I don't know, but Brett, what do you it's think? A, that's it? a good customer to have a concentration, and I will yeah, say that. I, I think I, I don't care. I care about customer customer concentration unless it's the federal government. Then that yeah. I'm okay with it. I mean, servicing is in a great business. It's low growth. Now that bank is more unrestricted, um, but now that bank isn't particularly part of the thesis right now, since it's so small, there's a lot of other things they're investing. Well, they're investing a lot in Nelnet Bank, but there's a lot of other things that are more meaningful to the to the thesis right now, I think. Let's let's move on to some of those potential, um, you know, parts of the business. Brett, you know a decent amount about the renewable energy business. You know, that's that's a that's a hot button topic in, you know, in, in the investing in, you know, really the world in general. Um, you know, how, how is Nelnet trying to capitalize on, you know, the growth in renewables? 
Yeah, so uh, let's give some context here. In each of their shareholder letters, they put a capital deployment uh, for each year and by each segment they go through. And so I'd recommend for anyone that's interested in this to read that because that table highlights where they're investing money. And in 2021, or sorry, since 2013, they've invested $1.4 billion in their quote other category, which includes uh, real estate, solar, and other capital investments. So that's quite large versus their market cap of, uh, I don't have it in front of me, in between three and $4 billion. And that's $1 billion over the last two years. And even last year, it was $726 million into this category. So clearly, this is where they're investing a ton of dollars right now. So that's the context I want to give because renewable is a big part of this. They've invested $288 million with co-investor partners um, in projects that are worth around $1 billion. Now, they are very secretive as a company. So it's unclear their unit economics. It's unclear the revenue of this thing. It's hidden in the other category. So I don't have any numbers or margin numbers or whatever for people. But what they are doing is financing community solar farms so people can tap into renewable energy without the hassle of putting up the solar panels themselves. So a customer benefits from this because you just sign up through your you, your utility, you tap into the solar farm that they finance with their partners, and then they get the savings as the customer, you get the savings and tax credits on the energy bill. So now why is Nelnet doing this? Because it creates tax efficient, durable streams of cash uh, as these projects scale. And it's quite sim- it's just a simple, you know, think of it almost as a utility business where they're financing these things. They're getting cash back from customers. I'm assuming it's a revenue share. Again, they don't, they don't put out the details here and they want to be, and this is straight from them. They want to be a long-term owner of these assets. And then to give a little context of some numbers they've given out right now, they manage 550,000 megawatt hours, which is electric output. And they have the goal of getting to 1.5 million megawatt hours by 2025. So clearly they expect to continue the heavy investments here. We have really no insights into the profitability, but one thing I think it highlights is that it is dampening overall uh, earnings numbers. So since one of their big things here is because, you know, with solar, you have the tax credits, you get some tax efficient stuff, you get tax write-ups, all that good stuff. The other segment, um, which renewable investments are in, burned $19 million just in Q4 on a gap basis, but if they have good returns on invested capital here, we think over the long term it's going to start generating cash. And even if it doesn't show up in the earnings per share number, it's generating value uh, for Nelnet. I know that was a lot. So any questions on that? And they love they love to understate their earnings whenever possible. They're very like, I'd say it's probably one of the most conservative businesses I've come across maybe ever. And they uh, so that's kind of a recurring theme if you're a shareholder is they have a lot of valuable assets that they just kind of keep a blanket over and they don't really, they don't want to be too transparent about that stuff because they're more prior, they are prioritizing the long-term cash it'll generate over whatever short-term pop and stock price they might get. Yeah. And, that, so, and this is a, and I should add that the, for people that are worried about um, the, the student loan books that they own coming off for the next five years and where the cash is going to come from, this is a big part. Hopefully, you know, they got to execute. Hopefully is where it's going to come from. If they're not super transparent, uh, it seems like it would be a relatively difficult company considering that they are, I guess you could consider them professional capital allocators with the cash flows that they're getting. Um, how, how do you judge a business 
that is making investments, but you can't see how the investments are doing? I guess that's kind of my question. Like, how do you determine their financial performance? Do you put trust in the company's management and look at overall company performance? Or are you trying to look at each individual investment of the company? You're not completely blind to it. So, I mean, we, they give the, uh, they give all the segments their operating income, I guess, the ones that they have to give. So like the K through 12 uh, software businesses, you can see the return or you can see the operating income that they are generating from there. Um, and you can basically just look at their track record. They've compounded. Uh, I don't this might not be the exact number, but I think they've compounded book value per share at. I can get the exact number. 17 or 18 percent for the last 17 years. And so there's they part of its trust um but you can you can also there's indicators where you can see sort of how the assets are doing and um, what's in there but i mean i'm referring more probably to the venture investments the stuff that they have minority stakes in where they don't have mm -hmm. to disclose the financials they tend to keep those uh i feel like they tend to understate those and part of that is the huddle one which i really like and they just never give us enough color on it but and you can get little pieces here and there from like other sources, but it's, it's a little bit of a puzzle. You got to piece it together. Yeah. One, I, I really want to get to huddle, but I have just one question kind of about competition with, um, you know, in this renewable energy space, what really is their competition? Like, is, is there, are they really competing against just people that can finance this themselves and don't necessarily need the loans or are there other loan services or loan servicers that partner with their with with these utilities um you know what who who are they really fighting against and you know what what is their market share kind of looking like in the in the space if they do break that out i know they're you know pretty pretty secretive but yeah so they're very small i think they only do something that would cover 50,000 homes or 50,000 customers it's either homes or customers i can't remember but i wouldn't really think about it as connected to the loan servicing at all it's a whole separate business almost like how something would be at Berkshire Hathaway or something like that. Um, the competition, yeah, there's definitely competition, but on like a either global or uh, national scale. But once you have the solar farm, just like a utility, it's a monopoly locally. Um, so I, I'm not too worried about that. They're very small. They're only in, I, I looked this up actually this morning. There's only, they're only in New York and Colorado and very, very small areas because the only way you can access it is if they build a solar farm up front in specific uh, partnership with the community. So they do something like with college campuses or they do something with, you know, local neighborhoods. It's very small. And that's because you have to get everyone in the community to partner with that. But once it's online, you're basically a monopoly because you're not going to build another farm. Um, that, that would just make no sense. The And yeah, the, I also would think that the market, is expanding so there'll be competitors but it's uh it's a market that everyone wants to grow and yeah 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 it's a huge huge market opportunity yeah let's shift gears a little bit here and talk about huddle huddle is one of like it's a very interesting part of this business um and one that i i'm personally a fan of they they own a um, you know, a significant portion of Huddle, the company, which is, um, you know, and Brett, Ryan or Brett, please correct me if I'm wrong, but it's basically like a recording um, platform where athletes can, you know, 
gets get statistics for other players so coaches can can recruit um you know high school or college players or something like that but also kind of promote themselves like as an athlete is that is that accurate yeah it's got it's basically a monopoly on the athletic film industry i i, I is how i would describe it mm-hmm. they and, and so the there isn't we don't have the exact number in terms of what they own for Huddle, and I think their conservatism has rubbed off on Huddle's management. So they've been investing in Huddle since I want to say like 2010 or something like that. They were one of their they were basically the seed money because Huddle, I believe, is also headquartered in Lincoln, and so they were kind of just um, local friends and. Huddle's kind of taken off over the last decade. So if I'm an athlete, let's say in high school, and I, I think, I don't know if you guys both played sports. I know Connor did. Uh, you kind of have to use Huddle to get your name out there. And if you're a team and you want to re- you want to kind of look up what the other team's uh, film is like. So let's say you're a football player and you're uh, studying film. You're going to share that your school will share that film your film with other schools and so you can look at each other and kind of uh, analyze different teams and they also own a similar product for college basketball it might be high school basketball um uh called what is it crossover which is so it's it's not just specialized in football huddle has i think 98 percent, 99 percent market share or something like that in high school football but they also uh, they also own the the basketball one, which I mentioned, and I'm blanking on the soccer one, but they own one for professional soccer, which I have family um, that work in the pro soccer, uh, I guess, league here in America, and they say they have to use that for to analyze players in Europe or South America, and a whole bunch of the pro soccer teams across the world are basically using that software um, to analyze players, and so. They really have sort of a stranglehold on that. They huddled, huddle has that, but Nelnet has invested in various rounds over the years, multiple times. So it's hard to know what their actual stake in is. It stake in it is, I would guess, somewhere between ten to twenty percent. Um, and I do think that's a business that'll IPO eventually here. And I have to imagine it's going to be worth a lot of money. Yeah, I would add on to that. Um, let's just, they gave some numbers in the annual report. No revenue numbers, unfortunately, but the company has 3,000 employees. So clearly it's big. Uh, and they serve more than 200,000 teams in 40 sports across 150 countries. So they're very global. And from a business perspective, it's not necessarily, you know, the important from a value for the player is very important. Like, you know, you're using it as your film. But from a business perspective, you have the schools, you have the professional teams paying huddle either a monthly or annual software fee. It's, it's basically a SaaS business. And they have some other things on top of that. But re, really the thesis is that this is a very sticky business once a team starts using it. And once they, they use it as basically their software of choice that they're, if you're a football coach or a soccer coach or whoever, you're in this software hours and hours a day. I mean, you're not going to, the switching costs seem very, very high. And it should be high margin software business. But uh, unfortunately, we have no idea what the revenue is. It, it should be in the nine figures at least, uh, given their, given what they charge. Um, but it, it, there's a lot of uncertainty there. But again, uh, there's a lot of upside if this stake is worth a lot for Nilnet. And every single mainstream high school team of any sport 
is pretty much using Huddle. And Huddle also, I believe they have an ads business on a lot of the videos that, that they're playing as well. So I don't think we've mentioned that. Um, at least I remember seeing ads on, on Huddle when I was trying to watch other athletes' uh, videos back in high school. I'm not sure if they talked about that at all. but Yeah, I think that's sort of like a, uh, a freemium. I'm sure they run some sort of like a freemium model where if you're mm -hmm. just other if i'm not paying and i just watch like another player i probably can see an ad on their film or whatever but if i'm subscribing and i'm a school and i'm paying like whatever it is four thousand bucks a year um i imagine there isn't that many ads in that sort of ecosystem but i think it's two separate i guess like there, there's two it's separate. like spotify yeah to some extent yeah it's it's hard to know because huddle doesn't they don't like there's no S1, there's no 10K. You don't know what, what their business really looks like. Yeah, I wish they would say. I wish Nelnet would say, because <laughs> then we would know how much the stake is relatively worth. But right now, I mean, it could be worth a lot less than we're thinking, but relative to the market gap of Nelnet, three to $4 billion, a 10 to 20% stake in Huddle, we think, and again, it depends what market environment you're in, but we think that could be worth a significant portion of their current market cap um, in combination with all the other businesses they own. Yeah. When I, when I first saw that they, that they owned huddle, the, the first question that came to my mind was just why this seems to have, you know, nothing to do with any of its other businesses. And I mean, that, that is, I guess it plays a part into the optionality, why I like that they're, that they're so diversified, but other than the fact that they're both from, from Lincoln, is there any real like connection or, um, you know, reason that, that they're a part of that have a significant stake in this company. Uh, so I should say that that is really the, whole, that that's it. It's the Lincoln <laughs> part. They, uh, they wanted to diversify into venture capital and they wanted to take the Nebraska market and be the leader in that. Um, because you know, they're not going to win on the, the East or West coast. Um, so they're investing in, they said they basically invest or look at every company that comes through that's from Nebraska. And yeah, that's a small amount. I'm sure it's more, you know, Midwest uh, in other states there. But yeah, that's basically it. They want to diversify. They wanted to become capital allocators, basically, just like, you know, Buffett or someone else. And that's it. Management thought this was just a good good idea to go into. There is, there is, I don't know what, why, but in Nebraska, there's sort of like a, a home state bias. And it kind of, they, they look out for each other in terms of, I found that a lot of, Nebraska companies fund other Nebraska companies or they uh, invest in each other. So um, I, Boston Omaha is a company that we, we went to their shareholder meeting and the chairman of Nelnet was sitting in the back row um, and he was watching and we're like, oh, is that, that's him. Like, like, I think that's him. So we went and said hi. And so obviously he's a shareholder of Nelnet, probably a small position, but there's no way to really know. And then the, Chair, one of the chairmen or the CEOs of Boston Omaha runs a fund that owns a ton of Nelnet and has been buying a lot. So there is there is sort of this whip, like mangled sort of conglomerates in Nebraska. <laughs> and there's even a, there's a Berkshire tie-in somewhere in there as well. There's a Buffett tie-in, but it's a bit uh, the angle's a bit far-fetched. It reminds me a lot of some of those. Um, I believe it's Israeli companies where like Fiverr. Wix and there's another one that's slipping my head, but they're all very interwoven. They have a lot of like a lot of their management is very uh, integrated, and they all know each other, all worked with each other at one point. Yeah, 
Yeah, Monday.com, I think, is one, too. Oh, yeah, Monday, yeah. Yeah, they all support each other. Similar dynamic, just with the uh, just with the local area. Yeah, not not a not a bad group to have supporting each other. <laughs> really, there. No, that's that's no. a very uh, you know knowledgeable lineup. Um, sh- shift shifting a little bit. Um, you know, there, there's this business really has a, a incredible diversity and you know a really strong operating income and profitability to to back it up. But you know, if we're thinking five or ten years from now. And and this company is a zero. What what happened? How would this you know fail per se, or um, you know not not be the great investment that that you know we would hope it would be? That would take a lot. I, I don't think a zero is possible. I, I think it's probably there's a lot of liquidation value, and it's so diversified that it's hard to think of any like all the businesses would have to do poorly. Maybe. Um, one of the sort of big catalysts that we talk about, talked about with the federal government hampers returns, but I don't see, I don't see a world in which investors can lose a ton of money. Yeah. The big thing is just, they make poor investments. So like if we look at the table in their annual report or sorry, the annual letter they invested, well, some of that's that debt repurchases. So kind of capital deployment, that might, that's just kind of may not be included as like a growth investment. They invested over a billion dollars though and stuff besides that. Um, they're reinvesting a ton. If the reinvestments are poor, then the returns aren't going to be that great. But the floor, and this is why it's one of our, well, our largest holding, all, who knows, maybe the market changes every day, but it's our largest holding because we think the floor is so high with a strong management team. And then uh, conversely, going on the complete other side, this is about a $3 billion, $4 billion company. If this was worth $10 billion, um, you know, five, five or 10 years from now, what went right? What would, you know, if, if you could pick out a main growth driver or a few things that they really would have capitalized on, um, what, what would have been those things, uh, you know, or what do you think would be those things? I would say that the... Uh, business services, so the uh, software businesses would have expanded on their own, whether that's pure, that's whether that's through pricing power, whether that's through new customers, um, that they grow, whether that is through new businesses. So they've been a sort of a serial acquirer in that area. Um, so maybe they add a bunch of new line items that are uh, good investments. I almost think of that segment like Constellation Software. Uh, just sort of a microscopic version. Um, and it's it's basically the inverse of what Brett said earlier, that the investments they make from the cash flow that they have at their disposal over the coming years um, generate good returns. Uh, and it, basically, you're going to fall in line with whatever the returns on that invested capital is going to be as a shareholder. Yeah, and the specific things would be okay, growing down that bank, that's kind of boring, but that could, you know, that could generate value. The venture stakes could be very exciting. Huddle could be worth the stake in Huddle could be worth, say, north of a billion dollars or something like that. But the key thing is all the investments they're making in the other category, along with what Ryan just mentioned in, in education. So they've invested over a billion dollars in this other category, which again is real estate, solar, and capital. So again, they're very secretive, but these real estate and solar investments, if they're investing that much money, we got to see a good return on that. If we do, then the business will they steadily grow book value per share, which is actually we think is 
understanding the true and strategic value of the business, but with, you know, it should grow at the 15 to 20% clip like it has. And that will, if it does, then, and the, the investors value it the same as they have as the past, the business will be worth $10 billion within the next 10, 15 years. Plus if, if the shares get, they are great capital allocators for shareholders because the chairman is the largest shareholder. So if uh, the stock declines for whatever reason or something that isn't super immaterial, they will buy back shares opportunistically and they've shown an ability to do that. I think they have a dividend as well, or am I getting that wrong? They do. Small one, I forget the yield, but it's not a huge part of the It's thesis, around 1%, but, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's there and it's nice. It'll add to returns, but yeah. But I mean, they think they, the, the the head capital allocator thinks just the same way any any shareholder would, um, and he his his goal is to maximize uh, shareholder returns of the long term. So it, it's a good alignment for us to have. Yeah. So when you when you guys are looking to monitor, you know, is is this investment thesis playing out? Is uh, now that you know executing and doing well what what kind of metrics are you are you looking for you guys mentioned um the book book value per share growth is, is there anything else are you guys looking at eps growth or more maybe the shareholder friendly actions like you know an increasing dividend or share buybacks i mean it, it it's probably a mix of everything but you know what what are some of those um you know key performance indicators that you guys are looking for um you know to make sure that this business is you know staying healthy yeah there isn't one one metric we could point to we do we definitely keep track of the buybacks um brett are there, are there any like other kpis that you're kind of watching uh we just look at top and bottom line for each of their segments to see what <laughs> those are um so education technology agm which is their the loan book they own see how fast they're going down that bank other um but besides that we kind of just look in book value per share, which again, is usually not the best thing for a typical business, say like a Google, it can be really dumb to use that. But for this, we think it's kind of the best. We think, I, I don't, don't look at earnings per share. Um, it can be inflated and deflated. Uh, I think with this company, it's fairly useless. Cash flow can also yeah. be a bit mixed because of the way they finance stuff. So um, you, you may have to X out some things, but really I'm looking at the top and bottom line for each segment looking at how much they're investing into each thing. And then over the long term, what is cash flow generation over multiple years? Yeah, and the like, so let's take the earnings number, for example, this year, I think it was included in this year's financials, they sold their Allo stake and they had a $200 million uh, boost to their income. That is not gonna be there on a go forward basis. So it's like that, if you're looking at it's going to look cheap on some earnings ratio and so we we avoid net income generally um and i would say this is a company where it's going to fluctuate so much anyways this is this is really a spot where you want to ignore earnings per share so looking at Nelnet, it seems like this company is definitely in the value territory and this kind of transitions us to talk a little bit about what your investment style is. Is it typically value focused? Um, is it heavy growth? I'd love to hear a little bit about your strategy with that as far as some of the companies that you invest in, uh, et cetera. 
Brett, you want to go first or you're not making Yeah, I, I can go just for the general one. Um, we tend to focus, we don't have a focus on either value or growth uh, in the traditional, uh, in the sense that people might be thinking we're not looking at something that has a 10 PE and saying, oh, we like that versus something that has a 40 PE. What we're focusing on is kind of three big things. It's how much cash a company is generating now. Um, and if they're not, okay, how much cash do we think they can generate over the next three, five, seven, ten 10 years? How predictable do we think it is? And then how, uh, and then the evaluation of management. So their track record, what we think they're going to do with the cash that they get as a, uh, you know, because it's very important how, how long a runway is their reinvestment or sorry, how long of a reinvestment runway do they have? Um, and we're really thinking in that regard. So I wouldn't classify ourselves in a value or growth. We own some stuff that people might describe as quote hyper growth. Uh, and we're not afraid to invest in that. And we're also own some stuff that people might call deep value. But in reality, what we're focused on is how much cash a business will generate over the next, you know, whatever, three, five years, um, and how predictable we think that can be. Ryan, is there anything else I'm missing? No, I think you pretty much hit it all. We, we don't want to pigeonhole ourselves into a certain corner of the market. We don't want to say like a company has to have 40% top line growth or something like that, or it has to be below a certain cash flow multiple because what we're doing for any business that we like, first of all, we try to assess the we tr we're trying to get to the intrinsic value of uh, the stock or the security and so uh, and that for different companies requires different valuation methods um, and so we'll do it with any type of company we have ones that trade at what would seem on on face value look like expensive multiples we have ones that look like garbage deep value but we think the business is good um, and so Basically, we're trying to get to our own estimate of where we think the stock price should be. It sounds like John Rotanti has influenced y'all a little bit there in, in, in that case. Probably. Yeah, he's a, yeah, we talked to him a lot. Return, he's very good at uh, you know focusing on free cash flow, return on invested capital. He's been very helpful with that. Mm -hmm. We're we're running a little short on time here, but I have one question that I that I want to really get to. You know, I, I listen to you guys, you know, every every week. For the, for the most part, diving into a new company of some sort, um, yet you guys are really concentrated in, in, in terms of your portfolio structure. And I, I just want to, you know, I guess kind of have you guys kind of explain your your strategy for adding new, new positions. I know that's a very broad, uh, you know, topic, and I, I really want you guys to take it in whichever way you guys see fit. But how, how do you find that stock are you guys willing to take risks on you know some some expensive or um you know ri riskier volatile companies um or or are you guys really looking for the, the stars to align everything kind of has to be um you know right where you want it in terms of of an investment how do you, how do you guys look at that um you know in terms of finding new companies we i guess yeah. time time could be thrown into this question as well like what mm -hmm. is the time in between investments are you picking a new stock every six months with etc I, I figured that could give some clarity yeah. there we, we have developed some processes in terms of like well before we invest in or a new stock we have to pitch it to one another and kind of go through we've built ourselves little checklists um and then we'll sometimes weigh opportunities one against another we have different ways of doing that um but there is not 
some like structured method that goes from because our not so deep dives on the podcast really are we try to make those our first look at a business or our first sort of uh we're, we're just peeling off like the first layer of the onion and looking at the, the brass tacks and then from there we we usually sit on it for a while i would say unless it's like a screaming opportunity maybe we'll do some work quicker on it but usually we let the idea sit and then if we're really interested in something it'll be on our watch list we'll kind of watch it a little longer study the business a little more um, and then once one of us feels comfortable pitching it to the other person we'll kind of have that dialogue am i missing anything in that process yeah i'll add on um so the way we frame ideas is we want to get a 15% compounded return while taking the least risk as possible. So the way we want to do that, and now that's a great example here, we think it can compound at 15% a year, and we think it has the, one of the lowest levels of risk in our portfolio, which is why it's one of our largest positions. Now, we're looking at that, and that's a high hurdle rate. So each year, say we want to find one or two of these high quality companies that we believe can compound, you know, at 15% a year. And typically that means that we want to find them at a lower valuation. So that's not, you're not going to find that very often. Um, a lot of the times we'll find a high quality company that we do on a not so deep dive, or maybe in a not so deep dive, we think it has the chance to be a high quality company. Um, I'm trying to think of an example here. I don't want to say because it might be in someone's portfolio or something, but say we find something we think is great and we think the business is rock solid, but the valuation is kind of crazy or, you know, it looks a bit high for versus our confidence level. We're going to put it on the watch list and 90% of 95% of companies go on the watch list and they might never make it in the portfolio, but we think one or two times a year, if we're patient enough, something will come across that is trading at something where we think as low risk, and a chance of 15% plus returns. Um, and that's how we that's how we make the portfolio. And again, that's why we only have eight to 12 positions and in the fund. Yeah. yeah, so part of that concentration is that we, we wanna hit a certain hurdle, right? The other part I would say is, I don't know if we have the cognitive bandwidth to have like 30 companies in our portfolio and, and close feel like a intimate owner uh, of all of them. So we, uh, it, maybe it's just our uh, our own restraint in that regard it gives us less earnings reports that we have to read. But uh, yeah, the balance. Yeah, uh, I honestly, yeah, the diversification. I think at you know twenty come. Well, it depends on your sizing, but diversification. Um, you get most of the benefits there at about twenty to twenty five companies, and we're a little bit less than that. But that's because we want to have the higher hurdle rate, and we don't want to just be a uh, index stretch. And we know like with the Molly fool style, which we're big fans of, uh, you take the positions and let it, let them ride maybe at a, a smaller starting point, but with the concentration that we have and with the fact that we're not taking a bet on a lot of maybe higher risk, high growth, hyper growth stuff that, uh, people are interested in. It's just a different outcome that we're looking Well, we may get the same like outcome from a return standpoint, but it's just a different process because we're going to take the concentrated position. We're not willing to take the higher risk. Uh, that's someone with, a, you know, say a ton of 1% positions that may turn into one of them turns into a 10% position over the next decade. That's not exactly what we're looking for. But again, we're, we're, we're just looking for good returns like anyone else. 
Well, like Warren Buffett says, or I'm probably butchering the way he says this, but diversification is for bad investors. Is that is some, something along those lines? I, th- I think I think is what yeah, he says. Yeah, I think it might have uh, been Munger, his partner, but either way, it was like, uh, diver- yeah, diversification is for people that don't know what they're doing. They can say that with confidence. I don't think I would say that yet. You know, like they get, they're one of the few people I think that can say that with confidence and know that they're right. But we're trying to, uh, you know, we're not as concentrated as they might be with only four positions. But yeah, uh, I think concentrating your portfolio, again, unless you have the, you know, kind of venture style bets, it's really the only way to outperform, I believe. Awesome. Well, Ryan and Brett, thank you guys so much for coming on today. Uh, this was a good conversation. Definitely piqued my interest in Nailnet. It's a company I've barely looked at in the past, but uh, I'm definitely going to be doing some more digging into them in the future. Uh, so thank you guys. Yeah. Thanks, Connor. Thanks, Jamie. Thanks for having us. Awesome. Well, we'll see you next time. Thanks.